Welcome to the latest episode of the Culture Perth and Kinross podcast. Dr Nikki Small is currently working on a project to collect forest memories and we want to hear from anyone in Perth and Kinross who has worked in forestry with the Forestry Commission or anyone who has worked in estates or woodland management. We hope to interview people and we also hope they may have photos or memorabilia they will want to share with us. So on a forestry theme, this week Nikki is interviewing retired forester Sid House. Sid worked at the Forestry Commission for 35 years and was awarded an MBE for his services to the sector and he and Nikki are chatting in Sid's garden about a book, a very old book which has been a particular inspiration to him. In local and family history we look after lots of wonderful collections but one of our main ones is our newspaper collections with lots of titles of newspapers, some familiar like our good old Perthshire Advertiser and some less well known like the Perthshire Constitutional. Now people use these collections to do all kinds of local and family history. We search for births, marriages and deaths um, but there's so much more, images, articles and all kinds of local stories for social history. And the book we're talking about today was written by the editor and owner of the Perthshire Constitutional. So he's a He's a newspaper man, Thomas Hunter. Hunter was born in Glasgow in 1849 where he did his journalist training and then he moved to Perth for a reporter's job around 1879. He apparently made a deal with the then owner of the Constitutional to take that newspaper over and and when the previous editor died that's, that's exactly what happened. Thomas Hunter was married to Annabella, um, they had a big family and they appear to have all worked in all aspects of publishing locally in Perth. He died quite young, um, 54, he was age 54 in 1904 after some years of ill health, but it was his obituary in the papers that suggested his greatest work was Woods, Forests and Estates of Perthshire, along with Hunter's Guide to Perthshire. Um, and the book was actually taken from news, regular newspaper articles he wrote and just the, uh, the interest that he, his regular articles appealed to people. So he, he talks of all sorts of things and in his introduction he said himself, the introduction to the book, he said that he intended to write a history of forestry in Scotland and that when he started exploring the subject in Perthshire, the centre of, of, in Scotland of the initial efforts to reforest Scotland um, were beginning in the 18th century and, and that's exactly what he does. He wanted to show what great improvements had been made by planting trees and that this led him to explore how estates generally improved um, with notable and or historic trees could be surveyed. He then, then it gets more complicated because then he gets into the families within these big estates and for me that was the most satisfying part of the book because I've always referred to this book in my own history to find out more about the family. Hunter can't resist giving a wee telltale about what's going on there. But today I'm going to talk um, today with Sid House. Now Sid is a retired forester, he worked for the Forestry Commission for over 35 years. He was based in and around Perth and other places um, and he was awarded an MBE for his services to forestry um, on his retiral. In 2016. Now, so you've actually written a short article about Hunter's book, um, but we are sitting, we're sitting at the top of, <laughs> we're sitting at the top of your garden today, actually, to record this because we've got an amazing um, view here from all sorts of places, and you're going to tell me why this is really important because I'm, I can see one or two things we might be looking at, but I'm not quite sure why. So, what, what about the view here, and why are you drawn to woods, forests, and estates by Thomas Hunter? Well, first, let's just paint a picture of a landscape round about us. We're sitting at the top of a, an old um, uh, farmsteading, uh, which has been developed for, for housing. Uh, but the beauty of it is it gives us a 360-degree view. And from that point, we actually can look to a number of estates. Oh, we're, looking, we're sitting well north at the moment, yeah? Yeah, are mentioned in Hunter's book. Uh, look, no, looking north, uh-huh. we can see to Athol, yep. see the uh, uh, woods there, and then we can see Burnham Hill, yeah. which brings in 
Murphy Estate and look over okay. towards Murphy. And that's the that. Stuart Fotheringham? Stuart Fotheringham's, yeah. yes. Stuart's originally and then the Fotheringham's were they married into to help maintain their estate, their holdings. And as we move from north, northwest to west, we look into first Tully Beagles, which was part of, of formerly part of Murphy, and then into um, Logie Almond, Glen Almond Estates. Logie Almond, of course, part of Lindoch. Uh, Lord Lindell's yeah. estate then became part of Schoon Land Holdings. Okay. That's Schoon, a great name in forestry terms in, in, in this part of the world, and, and Glen Almond. And then as we swing round, we're still seeing parts of, of Lindell and woods as we move towards looking the south. In the far distance, we can see the Ochels and yeah. a whole number of woods and estates were, uh, were planted there. Hunter refers to them, Dublin and so on. Yeah. And then as we look, uh, move south and start heading east, we catch Canoe Hill. Of course. And of course, Canoe Hill, well wooded and well renowned for the people of Perth. And the Sidlaws, again, parts of Schoon Estate we're seeing there over the other side of the River Tay. And then as we come round to look east, we see and you know, look into Taymount Estate, which is referred to what well, the first original plantation of Douglas fir, and of course Douglas fir has huge connections to Perth with David Douglas yeah, having founded course, the tree, yeah. or discovered the tree and, and brought back seeds of uh -huh. it. So just in this one spot we can actually see hundreds of years of stories and development of woods and forests and estates in Perth. In and what's, and, it, and it, it's great to have the opportunity to talk about Hunter's book because it's unique in Scotland. There's no other detailed regional account of the old remarkable trees, estate by estate, as well as the forestry improvements mm -hmm. and planting made in those estates. I can't think, I'm not even sure, but anywhere else in the, in the UK. We'd have a book like that. Just as detailed as this as with all the stories. And uh, for professional foresters like myself involved in the usual round of business, but one of the nice things about if you're a student of history, and I, I like to think, albeit from an amateur perspective, is um, one of the uplifting parts of the job is is discovering that um, although we tend to think of Scotland as a deforested country and a place where we should be planting a lot more trees, in fact we've got a very rich history of both of, of our native woodlands but mm -hmm. also of tree introductions and the people who went out and got those trees, I, brought them back. You're talking about the plant hunters then, plant they hunters, go out to the world and bring them back here? They did, yes. And then a lot of the first plantings were done in and around Perthshire and there are a number of reasons for that part of the estates, but also the quality of the ground. It was both highland, upland, and therefore often unimproved, but it was still of better quality than some of the, the really uh, poor quality land further north in, mm. the, in, the, in, the, in the much wetter and peatier and poorer geology areas. So Perthshire has these deep glens which are actually fertile. Mm -hmm. They're not productive from agriculture, at least you can't plough them because they're too steep. And even grazing them is quite difficult. But, but you can growing plant, trees, you can plant, you can plant trees, plant trees okay. exactly. So the early improvers knew that. That was one of the. They did, and they had, they, this, they had this sense of improvement. I mean, a hero in Scotland was someone who could grow two potatoes where once they had grown only one. Mm -hmm. And you only really understand the context of that when you understand famine. Yeah. And uh, uh, Scotland had had famine in mm -hmm. the late eighteenth, yeah. the late seventeenth, uh, and early eighteenth century, and of course was to be visited by problems through the potato blight, rather ironically, mm. it, um, potatoes. Uh, so um, it's a place where improvement, uh, and a huge emphasis was put on improvement uh, in the from the uh, 17th century onwards with Reed's book, The Scots Gardener, 
and the importation of a lot of new techniques from the, from Holland and from Flanders about draining land, of about course, crop yeah. rotation, mm -hmm. and from England as well. We, we learned a lot. And Scots gardeners and Scots land managers developed a huge reputation. And of course, it was a time of the Enlightenment, so we weren't just improving. We were improving our minds in education, but we were oh, improving, improving our land. the output from that, which was more productive land and industry and the use of resources, better use of resources to create wealth. And although you can have debates about, you know, ethics of some of that, you can understand the drive for people. Yeah. And it allows us to, it allowed us to enjoy the quality of life that we, that we have enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And Scots had a, had a huge reputation on this improvement. There was a time, actually, um, uh, when most of the head gardeners and all the estates in England were Scots. Really? And even more so, if you look at the subscribers to the David Douglas Memorial uh, in uh, Schoon Old Parish uh -huh. Church, you can visit that. Um, you'll see that it, uh, subscriptions, and it's the Duke of Bedford, the Duke of uh, right, Devonshire. Okay. They're all indebted um, to a man the like The Tsar of Russia yeah. and uh, <laughs> really? the King of Prussia and so on. And when I first, when I was doing some research on David Douglas, I wondered, this man's fame was enormous, but then it suddenly clicked. They all had Scots Whoa, head gardeners. Scots and of course, the mafia of Scots head gardeners <laughs> had traded seeds and plants and so on. And so, um, you know, it was a strong connection. And you can see that in the history of Kew Gardens or the Royal Horticultural Society. Um, strong reputation. And, and what you have here, looking around us, is the place where they learned their where trade. Where they learned their trade. Because we like, we like to think, well, I like to think, because I'm, you know, I'm only learning about these things, but, you know, that many of the old woods are ancient and they've been here forever and ever, you know, and they're untouched, if you like, and just really old. But, in fact, a good deal of woodland, you know, might, certainly not as old as we think. Um, and lots of land has been managed for centuries. I know from my own research in the Murrays of Athol at Blair um, that the, you know, Lady Catherine, the first Duchess, wrote once about a letter saying, I've nothing here but the rocks and the mountains. She never mentioned the trees. So there was a time, you know, in the 1700s when there weren't, the early 1690s even, there weren't trees there. So all that planting comes a bit later. So it's it's more managed than we think then. Is that is that the... Oh, hugely so. And did forests mean the same thing then? Well... I mean, as a whole, we could do a separate podcast on the whole business <laughs> of tree removal and planting and introduced trees and so on. But essentially, Scotland was a deforested country uh, after the last ice age, uh, when, the, when the glaciers retreated. Uh, the land was recolonised by plants and trees were prominent amongst that. So if you were to walk here, say, seven or eight, nine thousand years ago, this would be broadly covered. I mean, Scotland would have been maybe three quarters, four thirds covered in trees. It would be the wet areas, the bogs and the mm -hmm. rocks that wouldn't be. Um, with man coming, or yeah. with people coming to the area and the weather improving, they started to, to clear the land for agriculture with the introduction of agriculture. And they cleared the top of the hills first, paradoxically, it was lighter. Um, but over the, over the centuries, uh, land was cleared uh, and um, the forests eventually disappeared. Now, th that coincided with climate change. Ironically, right, right, given yeah. today's current yeah, discussion, yeah, uh -huh. and Scotland became a much wetter uh, country. If you think about it, we're on the extreme northwest end of the Eurasian landmass, mm -hmm. so at the end of the range of a lot of, of plants and trees. So sh if the weather became wetter by an inch a year of rain, or colder by one degree centigrade, Some plants just won't that would survive. mean that the tree, the where the trees, the marginal areas for trees to grow would be reduced, right. or conversely expanded. Then when you introduce people into the equation, 
um, we started clearing it, burning it sometimes to clear, mm -hmm. wool, uh, we would want um, bears or wolves to be taking our okay. livestock or indeed the livestock would graze. And then we're fortunate, it's got them to be a basically an oceanic country, so we can trade with neighbours who perhaps have lots of timber. Right, yeah. So whereas, this was a path that was going through a lot of Europe, of course, it wasn't unique to the British Isles, um, Tim Forest was being clearing for farming. Um, so you have that whole history of, of clearance, and, and it really took until the, um, the, the improvers, as I've just right. mentioned earlier, came along, starting a bit in the 17th century, but then you had the wars going on. Of course, you didn't want to surround your castle with uh, trees because that would give no. your enemy shelter. So it was really the 18th century and stability and really following the increase in wealth right. and trade and stability in the 18th century. And, of course, the Enlightenment is a huge part of that. And people Spreading knowledge. make their estates a yeah, nicer and, place And you have the great voyages of discovery. And, of course, uh, when Captain Cook went to Australia, he took with him Sir Joseph Banks. And economic botany was extraordinarily important. Right. And, and, you know, we're at a time we're debating about slavery and so on. And the rationale for all of that, of course, was that plants and plantations had been taken to all over the world for tobacco or for cotton or sugar. And you needed people to work in mm -hmm. those plantations. And um, uh, interestingly, you know, uh, with all the initial voyages of discoveries I mentioned had a botanist with them looking for plants which would be of economic interest. But of course, botanists would have interest for immunity for other things. And this is our master and commander, the chap on, on the ship. I can't remember. Yeah. It was the Paul Bettany character who gets off. Stephen and Maturin. Yeah, he gets off and, and, and finds all the bugs and plants and birds yeah. and things like that, sends things home. So that, that botanising is going on all the time. Yes. People are exploring. Yeah, again, part of this whole improvement thing and, and searching for knowledge. And of course, it's wrapped up in other things, as I mentioned. But, but there's a search for knowledge and improvement. And of course, a, a major part of that was bringing back trees. And it so happens that... Um, um, a lot of the early plant explorers, or plant hunters, as they're often called, happened to be Scots because, as I mentioned earlier, this early tradition, a centre of excellence yeah. in the Royal, Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh. Um, they generally were literate because of the education system mm -hmm, here, mm -hmm. and they were intrepid and hard-working. I mean, and, and Archibald Mingus, well. um, Aberfeldy, I mean, a boy yeah. brought up there and worked in the gardens at yep. Castle Mingus and then moves on to, to do Botanic great gardens, things. Yeah. And then became a, a surgeon because he was spotted by the... Yes, the head that's of the right, that's Garden, right. He's a surgeon as well, that's right, surgeon. Yeah. And he then sailed with, uh, Arch uh, with uh, Captain Vancouver. Amazing. And out of these voyages came the introduction and, and journeys, uh, because some of this was coming back from Europe as well, with, for example, the, the uh, larches on, came to Athol Estate. Oh, that's always an interesting story mm -hmm. in itself about how they actually came to be there. Then you have the voyages of discovery. You have Mingus going to the Pacific Northwest, bringing back specimens of Sitka spruce, Douglas fir, and a whole number of other trees. And, um, and Hunter's aware of all this when he's writing his book He's writing well. all this, yeah, including the infamous or famous Doug, uh, monkey puzzle from Chile, course, the story yeah. of how that was introduced. And then, of course, uh, probably the most famous of all, David Douglas, uh, uh, who actually introduced or brought back seed from all these trees. Mm -hmm. So that coincided with the, with the great planting dukes, the planting lairds, as they're often called, the first great surge of tree planting in Scotland to try and correct. And their idea, as Walter Scott puts it very well, Walter Scott was a huge enthusiast for tree planting and a friend of the Fourth Duke of Athol. Yeah. And he wrote an essay in the 1820s entitled On Planting Wasteland, which captured the broad enthusiasm of that period for 
putting tree planting onto what they consider to be wasteland, wasteland unproductive yeah. land. Now we call it wilderness or yeah. uncultivated or rewilding land. So they're then, rewilding back then, that's amazing. Well, well, <laughs> arguably they were using a crop. So yeah. I mean, there's a quite, and I would get into a debate with some of my forestry or conservation yeah. friends about that. But, but they saw it in the terms of that period of improving, improving. that land from very um, extensive grazing systems uh, which weren't producing terribly much. And, and part of this is economic, of course. They want to make money from from felling yeah. the trees and, and selling them. I mean, that's the big part of this the as Dukes well. The Dukes of Atho, in planting, saw that he could... His aim was to provide the Navy with all the timber. The Navy, and that large, right. a great shipbuilding timber, yes. would replace oak by the time the estate grew up, uh, into mature woodlands in about okay. the 1860s. And of course, those of you who are students of shipbuilding history will know that that was a period when iron bit ships oh started to, it's too late. to be... Well, technology, <laughs> I, it's actually a great lesson in forestry, just be wary of why you plant trees, because by the time those trees Whatever. come to mature in 50, 40, 50 years' time, almost certainly the rationale for doing so will have changed. Now, uh, that gives you some, some good pointers about keeping a broad... Uh, approach to how you plant your trees and, and not just having one them. type not putting all your proverbial eggs in one, one basket, basket. Yeah, but um so uh, 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 and Perth had a great um uh, tradition therefore of of tree hunters another one was john jeffrey who came from course, Bournemouth yes. uh -huh. and uh, who followed in the footsteps of douglas and all round these estates of Perthshire, and what Hunter's Book does is actually record where all these trees are. So, planted. can I still see some of these trees now? Really, is that is that too? Yes, yeah, you can. you can. I mean, there's a whole number of them. There's, and, and they're referred to, and I can take to specific references. And they're in river. woods, forests, and estates. Yeah, I mean, for example, uh, Schoon, there is uh, an original Douglas fir grown from seed, right. brought back by Douglas uh -huh. and sent back to his old uh, estate he was born and brought up on, on Schoon Estate. Sent back there to the to the Earl and to his gardeners, and that original uh, Douglas fir uh, is still still, still standing to this day, and also on Lindoch Estate. And I imagine Mr. This tree, these trees must have been gifted to Lord Lindoch at the time, who was also related. He was related to um to the Earl of Mansfield, yep, yep, absolutely, that, that's that family, right. As right. he was related to the, his, the Athels. Yeah. Um, uh, he has two. There are two trees there that were called the mother and father Douglas fir. Okay. They're on the banks of the Almond. It's still standing to this day, although there's no plaque. And only Nothing only fools you. like me who wander around and are interested in those things know where uh, I, I recognise those trees. But um, it was seed collected from those trees that was grown at places like the Hermitage, or okay. um, formed the first plantation of Douglas fir at Tamak, just where we're looking just onto where here. We're looking here as well. That then convinced. Um, more serious forestry people that you can actually plant these trees as plantation. There is a, a well-known cycle where you introduce a tree, you'd plant it. I mean, they, they didn't know if these trees would survive a winter, so often they would put them in a greenhouse over the winter. And it's okay. only in time that they discovered how hardy they really were. And they could stand it. Yeah, so what you'd do is you'd plant a tree, you'd specimen, you'd observe it for maybe 20 years. Okay, that looks like it's all right. And then you'd plant a grove at different places. And if they did all right, you then would plant a woodland. Right. Right. Now that might take you 70, 80 yeah, years. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, These great men have a visionaries. They're seeing something ahead in time that they're not going to live testing. to see they themselves. They were trying and so on. And a, a great tradition of trying. All of this was done, I mean, ultimately, um, came under the uh, auspices or, or the influence of the Royal Highland Agricultural Society of Scotland, which had a spin-off, uh, which was the Royal Scottish Arboricultural Society. 
um, which was founded in 1854, right. the, the oldest English-speaking forestry society in the world. Now the Royal Scottish Forestry Society, and I'm, I'm involved with them, a um, very distinguished group of individuals. We're going to leave Sid and Nicky and join them again next week to hear more on Hunter's book, Woods, Forests and Estates. Now if you have any forest memories, then please get in touch with us and Nicky would be delighted to hear your story. Full details are in the episode description. Thank you.